Hey, thanks for listening. I've been a little serious or hit on serious topics over the last couple of weeks. And while I think my commentary on Guns N' Roses was important, maybe it doesn't rank as serious. So today I'm going to depart from the serious, but stick with the important and discuss a handful of excellent cover songs. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'll Have to Think About That, a podcast in which we talk about history worth knowing, questions worth asking, and ideas worth considering, all in response to the incomplete education that so many of us have. Hey, thanks for listening. Like I said in the intro, I'm going to talk about some excellent cover songs today. Uh, Covers are great, or they can be at least. I think it's interesting when a popular song is covered and the covering act takes it in a new direction. They put their spin on it. Uh, I also think it's interesting when you hear a song that you actually don't even know is a cover, and you learn it's a cover later. You're like, wow, that's really interesting. Regardless of whether or not the covering band uh, put a different spin on it or not, you actually become introduced to the song through the cover of it, not its original. Well, anyway, all that aside... I am going to talk about, like I said, a handful of covers that I think are pretty excellent, are worth listening to, uh, and they're worth listening to for the sake of the original as well. Talk a little bit about the the songs, and um, maybe you'll go and and listen to these things. I'll put links to the various things that I mention in the notes on the file and my, uh, my podcast site. Now, the first song I want to talk about is a huge one from the early 80s. And this is Soft Cell's version of Tainted Love. Now, for the longest time, I did not know that this foundational piece of Brit synth pop, the the slightly dreary, slightly self-absorbed, a little overly dramatic music that fueled the suburban kids who flocked into drama classes throughout the 80s and then teased their hair up like Robert Smith, put on white face makeup and buttoned their white dress shirt all the way to the top. I didn't know that this was a cover. And I've talked to a lot of people about it over the years, and most people don't know it's a cover. Well, it is. It was uh, originally performed by a Motown singer named Gloria Jones, and it was a hit for her in 1964. It's fascinating, too, because the songs are essentially performed in about the same tempo. Um, they Soft Cell really doesn't change the song so much, aside from changing the instruments that are used, using a bunch of synthesizers. And it feels like they slow it down just a little bit. Uh, and I mean, there are a number of different mixes of this song, so it's, it's hard to pin it down. But it does feel like it's a little bit slower, and it's not phrased with as a, a snappy kind of finger-tapping quality as the original. The original, vocally, is also performed with a... I, I think, Jones gave a little bit of sass to it, whereas Soft Cell delivers it with that that signature mopiness, that just little bit of mopiness that is in so much of Brit synth pop in the early to mid-80s. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that this song itself was covered again by Marilyn Manson a number of years later. I don't know. I'm going to guess that Manson covered was inspired by Soft Cell's version and covered that. Um, Manson's version is is a turd. Um, I actually think Marilyn Manson is a bad joke, uh, and the only person who's not in on the fact that he's a bad joke is him. And so uh, I'm not going to talk much about 
his version because I, I just don't think I don't think it's it's definitely not as good as the original, and it is certainly not as good as Soft Cell's version. In fact, I think what the problem with his song is it tries too hard. It tries too hard to be edgy, and when you try hard to be edgy and rebellious, you look stupid and sound bad. So. That's Marilyn Manson. And by the way, another little little comment on Marilyn Manson. Never trust a band whose biggest hit is a cover. Now, Soft Cell did a fine version of this song, but how many other Soft Cell tunes do you know? Marilyn Manson, by the way, his biggest hits are pretty much covers. So, anyway, Soft Cell's cover of Gloria Jones' Tainted Love, a genre-defining classic. And that, I mean, that by itself, the fact that that song, Soft Cell's version, is really at the foundation of that, that genre of pop, that Brit synth pop. Bands like We Would Fit The Cure, We Would Fit Erasure. Uh, there's so many different acts that we would put into that that were huge in the 80s. And here is this genre-divining song that itself is a cover. So that one is a, is a must-listen. Okay, another one I think is worth listening to is Faith No More's cover of a Lionel Richie song that he wrote when he was with the Commodores. The original came out in 1976 and, and charted well in the Billboard uh, 100. Faith No More covered it in 1992 and released it as a single in December of that year, and it was a huge hit. Um, it, it's interesting, too, because if I were to see a list of bands next to the Commodore song, Easy, and I were to be asked to pick out which one's going to cover it, I would probably not pick Faith No More. Um, they were, if you're not familiar with them, their biggest song is called Epic. Uh, they were big in the early 90s and were kind of a, they were an interesting crossover, like a hodgepodge of, of genres. Like they were a little bit rock, a little bit punk, with I don't know, kind of like an edgy, garish pop sensibility that gave them huge crossover appeal. Uh, at that time, they take this song seriously. Like they cover it, and they don't. They don't try to change it. They don't try to make it something it's not. They actually deliver it with a with a tremendous amount of, I think, feeling, uh, and musically, it sounds great. It's played really well. It it's just, I think, it's proof that a good song, lyrically and musically, is a good song. Period. Uh, Faith No More didn't try to screw this up. They didn't try to turn it into something that it wasn't. They deliver it, and it's a terrific tune. So Faith No More's cover of Easy, which, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give props to Ed Castillo for pointing out the— and I've always thought this was a great line, but there's a, there's a great, great line in it in which Mike Patton, the singer for Faith No More, his line is, Ew! I've never heard someone— Make that sound in a song, and you're like, man, that was a perfect lyric. And that aside, Patton's vocals in this are absolutely beautiful. That guy could sing. I have no idea what he sounds like now, but at that point in time, that guy could absolutely sing. Top-notch vocalist. So I'll put links to those, and you can dig, ew, along with the rest of us. My next pick is Social Distortion's cover of the Johnny Cash classic, Ring of Fire. Uh, Johnny Cash and June Carter, who would then later become June Carter Cash, 
wrote this song and it appeared on uh, one of his albums in 1963. And it's funky because it, it starts off with this kind of weird mariachi vibe to it. Uh, the sound of the instruments and just the way that the, the kind of gallop of the song sounds like a mariachi tune to me. And, uh, and it's performed very much in that Johnny Cash early 60s, uh, really stripped down like original American country, call it like redneck hillbilly type music. Uh, with this, like I said, this strange mariachi horns overlay. Uh, it was covered in 1990 by Social Distortion, which is a, call it like fundamental punk band. Great, great band, by the way. And it's on their third album, which was self-titled, just Social Distortion. And in a lot of ways, in terms of it being a, a pretty simple, straightforward song, Social D treats it that way. And the music is there to deliver the lyrics and to give it a feel, uh, the music isn't there to spotlight itself. So, yeah, Social Distortion's cover of Ring of Fire. I'm, and I, I thank the, the gentleman who owns our gym, Keith Scott, uh, for playing such a terrific variety of music in his gym. And, and recently he has put Social Distortion's Ring of Fire into the rotation. So good stuff for him reminding me that this one was out there and... Um, and a pair of songs that I believe are worth listening to. Okay, next up. I put this song in here because it's a great example of a cover going in a completely different direction from the original. Um, this is Paul Anka's cover of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Smells Like Teen Spirit is Nirvana's signature song. It was on their 1991 Nevermind album, which is their signature album. Um... And uh, Paul Anka, who is best known as something of a crooner and uh, a, uh, a swing artist, this is a Rock Swings album that this cover is on, uh, put this one out in 2006. Um, it's nice because you can understand all the lyrics, unlike when Kurt Cobain uh, performed it. And beyond just this song, if you're interested in, in a really interesting album that has great vocals and takes songs that we all know and does something very different with all of them. Uh, Paul Anka's uh, Rock Swings from 2006. Honestly, you cannot go wrong with this album. I was in a store and um, listening, you know, maybe with my subconscious to the music that was being played, just, you know, piped into the store. And um, I didn't even realize what I was doing, but I was kind of in the back of my mind singing along. And I realized it was Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun, but it wasn't Soundgarden. And so I went and asked the folks at the store, like, what is this? And it was a satellite radio station. They're like, oh, yeah, that's Paul Anka's cover of Black Hole Sun. Now, I happen to think that his cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit is better, but... Um, I would go look this up. So I'm going to put those two in there as well. Because like I said, this is a great example of just taking a song, and, I mean, almost deconstructing it and rebuilding it. Same lyrics, same general uh, musical sequence and, and composition, but just going in a totally uh, unique direction compared to the original composition. Now, talking about a Rock Swings cover album, I'm going to move into an iconic rock song as my next example. Van Halen's classic cover of You Really Got Me by The Kinks. And the original was written by Ray Davies, came out in 1964, was a big hit for The Kinks in, uh, in England and elsewhere. 
And it, it's one of those early songs where the guitar is distorted and right in your face. I had heard a story years ago about how they took um, razor blades and cut lines into the cones of the amplifiers to make them distort, to make them buzz and vibrate when they were playing them. I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard that it is. I've heard that it isn't, but I'm going to stick with it being a good story. Uh, but the, definitely the guitar sound on that 1964 original is unique for that time and really uh, was groundbreaking and defined a lot for rock guitar going forward. Now, Van Halen covered the song on their self-titled debut, which was released in 1978. And actually, You Really Got Me was their first single from the album and is often paired with that solo eruption that's on the same album that really just defined Van Halen from the get-go and redefined rock and, and heavy metal guitar from that point forward. It's interesting, too, that this is another example of a cover that's, it, doesn't, it doesn't do a whole lot with the original. It doesn't, it doesn't change the arrangement. Um, it doesn't significantly change the, the tempo or anything like that. They don't try to redefine it. They just added Eddie Van Halen as guitarist, which is a pretty significant addition, and David Lee Roth's swagger. Uh, maybe I'll do an episode one day on, on Roth being the best rock frontman ever. But, um, but when you put those two people, and Michael Anthony's backing vocals too, which a lot of people don't recognize as being so key to that original Van Halen sound, you put those things into an already good rock song, you don't have to mess with the song. You don't have to do anything else to it. You just, you just kind of you turn it up to 11 in a way. So I highly recommend those two songs. My guess is you've probably already heard the Van Halen version, uh, but go back and listen to the Kinks version as well, and you'll hear that original. You'll just, I think you'll get a better sense for what Van Halen did with it. They just, they just put it up on a pedestal. They didn't try to redefine what the song was. Okay, moving on from one iconic rock song to another iconic rock song. In fact, now, I know I've said this before, that you never trust a band whose biggest hit is a cover. And I think in general, that's true. Unfortunately, this song is this band's signature song. What's fascinating about it is that it is their, it, it's one of two songs that are their most well-known. And I think, like, By a Hair is their more iconic song. It's, I think for the broader musical audience, it's, it is their most popular and iconic and well-known song. And it's, it's Neighbor. The next one is uh, more well-known among rock fans, or I'd say universally known among rock fans and, and metal fans. And that's Quiet Riot's Come On, Feel the Noise. The other song I reference is Bang Your Head, which actually is their song. Come On, Feel the Noise is a cover. Oh, my goodness. So we're in the danger zone here. We have your biggest song is a cover. The song was written and originally performed and released as a single by the English rock band Slade in 1973, and the song was actually, it was kind of forced on Quiet Riot. Uh, I don't remember if it was their manager or their producer, but someone who was involved in the, the creation of their first big studio album, Metal Health, kind of pushed it on them. And originally, and I've heard this story from Frankie Benali, who used to be the drummer, he died of pancreatic cancer about a year ago. He said that no one in the band wanted to do it. They didn't want to do a cover on their album, but they were convinced to do so. And to please their management, they said, okay, screw it, we'll do it. And they had quietly agreed among themselves that they were going to record a really crappy version of it so their management would just throw it away. 
but being the consummate musicians or at least you know driven to do well when they play um they they put the track down and they looked at each other and they went well crap that sounds really good and uh and so it became their their single and uh and their most well-known song like i said the like i've said before rather their 1983 metal health album was the first metal album to go to number 1 on the billboard chart so it's really it's an important album musically in terms of its place as related to genre uh but again come on feel the noise great song great version of the song but a cover um and i think really when you compare it to the original it it takes the original it maintains the same spirit of it but it improves and and for that time modernizes the production value and definitely like sonically puts it right in the vein of what became metal uh in the 1980s it's also interesting to note that Slade's lead singer and Kevin Debro, Quiet Riot's lead singer, sound almost exactly the same. All right, my next pairing is over a song that I really doubt any of you have heard of, the original from a band you have probably never heard of. The song is called A Rainbow's Gold, and A Rainbow's Gold was originally written by a, a British rock band called Beckett. Now, Beckett was came out in 1970, uh, they got together in 1970. They released one self-titled al- album in 1974, and then not long thereafter disbanded. Iron Maiden covered A Rainbow's Gold as a B-side to their Two Minutes to Midnight single back in 1985. The original is a snappy British classic rock tune, and we're probably one of the bands that served as an early influence of uh, of Iron Maiden especially of Steve Harris the bassist and primary songwriter and I mean Steve Steve Harris really is Iron Maiden Inc uh, so it's no surprise that they would they would cover this and Maiden had a habit especially in the 80s of doing covers as b-sides on their singles and I I find this cover interesting because again much like say uh Social Distortion's treatment of Ring of Fire or Van Halen's treatment of You Really Got Me, they don't change the fundamentals of the song. The song has good bones unto itself, but Maiden looks, it it seems to me like Maiden found opportunities to make the song better, to take what was there and improve it and make it a better song. They found opportunities to phrase things a little differently. Uh, they put in this great like split-second stop partway through the song before it picks up a gallop and speeds up. It's, um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting take on the song. So I recommend you listen to both these. I, like I said, if you've ever heard of Beckett, I'd be shocked. And you've probably never heard of Rainbow's Gold unless you're one of these like deep-dive Maiden fans, which sadly you're probably not. All right, my next song. The Green Manalishi with the Two-Prong Crown. The original was written by Peter Green in uh, 1970 and released as a single by uh, Fleetwood Mac. It was actually the last song that he wrote with them. And um, it's interesting, the story behind the song, I guess the Green Manalishi has always been identified as money and it, it being a, a, a source of temptation and evil. And this idea for the song came to Green after he had a drug-induced dream in which he imagined a green dead dog coming and talking to him. And he recognized the dog as being money. Anyway, so uh, don't do drugs. That's, uh, that doesn't sound like a pleasant experience. 
But uh, it was released as a single, like I said, in 1970 by Fleetwood Mac, and it was covered by Judas Priest and released on both their 1979 studio album, Hellbent for Leather, and their 1979 supposedly live album, Unleashed in the East. I'll put the link to the supposedly live uh, version uh, in the, the notes. Um, this is an example of a song that, honestly, I think this is a metal song, and Peter Green didn't realize it. And Priest looked at it and said, that's a metal song, and we got to give it the right treatment. I think the addition of an extra guitarist, uh, Fleetwood Mac has had one, whereas probably the foundation of Priest's sound is that, that dual guitar attack, Glenn Tipton and K.K. Downing, who both trade off, lead, and play rhythm throughout the song. So I think... I really think the Green Monolishi, it was a metal song. It is not a classic rock song. It is a metal song, and Priest recognized it and said, we need to elevate this. We need to put our spin on it and give it to the world in the manner that it was supposed to be, but its original composer didn't realize it could be. This, by the way, is also a, a great song for you to hear just how amazing Rob Halford is was as a singer early in his career and why he was, I mean, he's still a great singer, but why he was so much at the foundation of that operatic metal uh, vocalist sound. All right, my next pairing is over the song Bread Fan, which you've probably never heard or heard of. Uh, It was originally written by a Welsh early heavy metal band, Budgie. You've probably never heard of Budgie. Budgie formed in 1967 and was on again, off again throughout the 60, late 60s, into the 80s, on and off again in the 90s, off, on and off again in the early aughts. And the interesting thing about Budgie is that at the time, they were, for the British like hard rock and early heavy metal scene, they were an important band as an influence to other bands and artists who would go on and become known. It's kind of sad in a way that they're a band that um, they're almost like the first stage of an old rocket. You know, the rocket lifts off and then it starts shedding those early stages, which are essential to getting it out of the atmosphere. But nobody thinks about them once they're once they're shed. That's I hate to say that, but that's kind of budgy. Uh, Metallica covered the song Bread Fan in 1987 when they were doing Injustice for All. So it, it. I think sonically it lacks a little bit of the low end that uh, the bass that Injustice for All is often accused of of lacking, but it's a terrific song. And the interesting thing about it is here's another example of a song that has great bones. It's a it is a metal song. It was obviously the original version is played very much in a way that that says early 70s, and I don't think the vocalist fits it at all in the original. The song and the vocalist seem at odds with one another in the original. James Hetfield's growl was much more appropriate to the feel and the lyrics and the way the chorus is delivered. I've always had a soft spot for this song, but I think I'm including it here, maybe in part for my old friend Kevin Pollack, who it always seemed this was his favorite Metallica song. I know he mentioned it a lot. So Bread Fan is one worth listening to, both versions. All right, I'm going to close up this episode with one last song, and that is Summer Breeze. Originally performed by Seals and Croft. It was their big hit in 1972. It was their biggest hit. And um, for me, like I remember hearing this song as a kid. And it's a nice song. And it has a nice vibe to it. It's kind of, uh, I think it the, the feel that it evokes fits 
the title of the song and fits the lyrics of the song. It, it feels like you're sitting somewhere outside, it's warm but it's not hot, and there's a nice breeze, and life is good. I think in that respect, it's an excellent song. I mean, there's that great pairing of the lyrics and the music and what the two of them drum up in feelings. This song was covered 21 years later on Type O Negative's Bloody Kisses album from 1993. Type O Negative, if you're not familiar with them, they're not around anymore. Their uh, singer and bassist Peter Steele died a number of years ago. Uh, They were a gothic metal band. Uh, Singer had a really deep voice. He was really tall. He was like six foot huge and, um, and had a very deep, very unique voice and I think a very unique delivery. I know my friend Ed hates them with a passion and I don't know what's wrong with him for that. But I always dug Typo. They had a, they just had a vibe that no other band had and they covered Summer Breeze apparently in part as a, as a promotional, not a promotional stunt, but as a lever to, uh, to promote and market the album and they slow it down a bunch. They turn this kind of happy, dreamy, sense of satisfied song into a strange dirge and for that i thank them there's something wonderful about them taking this nice song and uh and turning it into something you should hear echoing around a haunted house and i i offer that one to you as a as a closing suggestion because it's so different from so many of the previous ones i talked about in that they took a song and they just changed so much of it and they, they changed the, call it the emotional impact of the song. Uh, anyway, so thanks for listening today. I have links on the site to all those pairings, all those versions. Highly recommend you go back and listen to them. And uh, have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You can leave feedback at my show site, which is thinkaboutthat.podbean.com. You can also subscribe there. I'd appreciate that. And share this out to anyone you think would be interested in listening. Have a great day.